So we're rattling uh, along in our journey on prayer and we finished uh, the first section all about getting our bearings and we move into this new section that we'll do for about five or six weeks together looking at lessons um, in prayer. The first uh, four weeks were all about how do we build the right foundation? What's our expectation as we come to understand what it means to pray and especially to pray like Jesus? We've drawn a number of parallels where the prayer that Jesus prays and the things that happen in response to Jesus' prayer seem quite different to the kind of prayers that I pray and often quite different from the response that they get as well. We noticed too that the disciples were on a journey. Uh, At one point they spectacularly failed in prayer. It was public and it was embarrassing. It was all our worst nightmares to pray something and to see it fail and everyone around to wonder who these clowns are or were. And that's what happened. They scurried back inside and they said to Jesus, you have to teach us more on prayer. We, We tried what we thought was what we should be doing and what we should be about and we failed catastrophically. Will you help us? And so it was an ongoing journey for them. Prayer then is something that we need to learn and prayer is something that we can learn so that we can be encouraged in our journey. Moira read to us uh, from John chapter 15, which is uh, towards the end of John's gospel, obviously, but it's the last few chapters that record the last evening that Jesus had with his disciples. That last evening covers several chapters, beginning uh, in chapter 13. It's like John's zooming in on this conversation. He's covered the whole of Jesus' life in 12 chapters, and now the last three, four, five, six, he's going to zoom right in to these final hours with Jesus. And there in those final hours, Jesus is explaining to his disciples those things that uh, Jesus believed the disciples really needed to understand, really needed to grasp, if they were going to go and carry on the mission that they'd been given. So if you like, we can zoom in on these verses, knowing that they are a pricey, a summary of some of the things that matter most. You don't have to go very far in the journey of chapters 13, 14, 15 to hear Jesus talking about prayer. And he talks about their prayer alongside living fruitful lives. All of us want lives that bear fruit. We want lives, as Chris was saying, in earthly terms that make a difference. We want lives in a spiritual sense that make a difference not just now, but on into eternity. And Jesus was talking to them about bearing fruit. And in that context, he mentions this about prayer. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Wow. Clearly we're getting a summary of the conversation, and you can almost hear the disciples saying, did he really say that? Is that what he really means? Can we really ask for anything, and he will do it? So Jesus repeats himself in the very next verse, almost as if to say, yes, that's right, you may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, some people have selected hearing with this verse. Other people you know will have selective hearing regarding different things. We all have selective hearing when it uh, pleases us. There is no promise that Jesus made that he will do or answer anything that we ask. It's not in the Bible, and yet sometimes we talk as if it's there, but it isn't. What we can say is that whatever we ask in his name, 
Wow. In his name awakens something so profound that the God of heaven would be at work in response to a prayer in his name. So what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? What can we learn? What can we understand? Well, firstly, praying in the name of Jesus is prayer that, A, firstly, avails the power or releases or or benefits us with the power of God. You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, to make a difference, to make a difference that will last, then in that context of being people who are willing to go and make a difference, willing to go and bear fruit, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And so these verses keep coming through these next couple of chapters. You'll ask me anything, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, said Jesus, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. How complete is your joy this morning? In that day, you will ask in my name. And so these promises just keep flowing, that in the context of being people, say, Lord, more than anything else, I want to bear fruit for your kingdom, fruit that will last in that context. Jesus says, well, ask. If that's the longing of your heart, then ask anything in my name, and you will be amazed, surprised by what I do. I guess if praying like that is what avails or unlocks the power of God, then I need to learn to pray like that. Maybe you can agree with me. You know, maybe that's not the way we normally have seen or understood our praying. It often feels kind of weak and empty. And yet to begin to learn to pray in such a way that as we saw in Jesus' baptism, heaven gets ripped open and the power comes down. Wow, that's something I need to learn. I must learn if I'm to bear fruit in his name. Now, praying in the name of Jesus is, is something that we're familiar with in terms of the language. It's obvious to say that it's not a magic word like abracadabra that well-known magic word, or open sesame, or something more contemporary, depending on your year of birth. That's obvious, but so often we do use it as if it is a kind of secret formula. The words in Jesus' name have become almost a a universal preamble to the great... Amen. Amen. Yeah, thanks, John. Have you never heard that when someone says in Jesus' name, Amen? Amen. Yeah, a few of you, good. And and so you're you're listening for it to come in the prayer. Someone's been droning on for hours, and you're thinking, when's it going to come? When's it going to come? In Jesus' name, and then you're ready to say the biggest amen to make absolutely certain they don't start up again. And it sort of marks that the end is coming, and suddenly there's a lightness in everybody once we get to the in Jesus' name. More seriously, it can become kind of ritualistic. Sort of the hope that if we say in Jesus' name, it kind of makes it more acceptable. In Jesus' name, kind of wakes God up. In Jesus' name, if he's not interested, then if I say in Jesus' name, somehow it will encourage him a little bit to respond to my prayer. Oh, that really hurt, actually. To respond to my prayer more than if I just said, well, that's it, Lord, I've finished, I'm done now, it's over. I've come to the end of what I'm asking. A bit like the request from a child who gives a request and then goes, please. 
eyelids flutter and all that. Please, I'll do anything you ask today. Please. God responds no more to that please than you do to your kids. Think about that. It's almost nauseating. And in Jesus' name can be that nauseating. It's almost as if, like, well, if we add that on, then you've had it, God. You've you've promised in Jesus. Whoa, here we go. In Jesus' name, God. Almost as if we can dare to bargain with him. It comes out of a lack of belief in who God is. That we use in Jesus' name just to try and increase the odds. As if we're dealing with a God who does not love us completely. As if we're dealing with a God who will not stop at anything to shower every good gift upon us. We think, maybe in Jesus' name I'll just get him to do it. As if somehow it's fundamentally against his will and purpose. And that's why, I hope you can see the link, that all true praying begins with our Father. It's only when you come to God, knowing that he is the God above all else, who longs to give you every good thing. Do you know that God longs to give you every good thing in the greatest scheme of the journey of life? We know that in our heads. Most of us don't feel or live out of that in our hearts. But as we learn to trust the Father in heaven who longs for our blessing, our flourishing, who watches over us more carefully than we watch over our own children. There is a certainty. And suddenly praying in Jesus' name is not us trying to get God to do what we want. But suddenly praying in Jesus' name becomes allowing God to do what he's always wanted to do. Well, you might say, if God always wants to do it, well, why the dickens doesn't he do it anyway? No, we live in a world that's chosen to ignore God. We live in a world that's chosen to do its own thing. We live in a world that's created a a separation, a distance between God and being the gentleman that he is, he's allowed us the freedom to do our own thing. Is God any less sovereign? No. Is there another ruler at work in our world? Yes. Is that ruler ultimately under God? Yes, of course. Has God allowed us the freedom to create mistakes, to fail, and to usher in the darkness that's all around us? Yes, he has. God's will is not being done manifestly in Ipswich, in the United Kingdom, around the world. If this is God's will, we're stuffed. This is not it. And so as we pray in the name of Jesus, we're longing for his will that would not otherwise come because it is not otherwise invited to come because we've been given the sheer privilege of inviting God to do what he longs to do. Which is exactly why when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus says, pray like this, Father, get that right, Father, and then pray what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth So it reflects, just as it is, in heaven. It's not about us at all. It's about Father, and then it's about his will, and then it's about his purpose. Which presupposes that what we see is not God's kingdom. Presupposes that if we do not pray the kingdom in, it will not come. Presupposes that when we do pray the kingdom in, his kingdom will come. Hallelujah. Thank you, John. No, thank you very much. I need to pray like that. I need to pray in Jesus' name. I need to pray prayers that are ushering in the things that God wants to do. 
Praying in the name of Jesus then is to pray secondly in accordance with his will and purpose. It's obvious, isn't it? But actually, my praying's all about me most of the time. Is that just me? If, you, if I was to look at your prayer lists, would I get the impression that it was more about you than him? It's all about him. And suddenly, my longings and my desires and my ambitions and my goals, am I going to put all those to one side and pray the things that are on his heart, his longings, his ambitions, his goals? Am I? Well, I can only do that if I can trust him. I can only do that if I know for certain that actually his desires for my life, his ambitions, his goals for all the situations that I care about are actually in the end going to be better than mine. Do I know God enough to release my will and purpose to his? Do I know God enough to be able to settle in my quiet space and say, Lord, what I'm praying for in that particular situation is what you want because I know that's best for them and I know that's best for me. But so often I find myself in that place of prayer going, Lord, do this, and Lord, would you do that, and Lord, I think this is a good idea, and and Lord, what about so-and-so who lives at number 53, as if God doesn't know? You know how we do that in prayer? Well, that's just me as well, okay. Um, And we pray as if God doesn't know, and we're trying to get him to get involved. And it's all upside down, and we wonder why it ends up so frustrating. I am the true vine. I am the true vine, Moira read at verse 15 of uh, that chapter. I am the true vine. He cuts off, he cuts off every branch that doesn't, isn't interested in the kingdom stuff. He gets rid of everything that doesn't last. Remain in me and I will remain in you. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to Father God, the more I can trust him with what's best in every situation. And the more easily I can pray, Lord, in your name, according to your will and your purpose. Now be very careful that you don't hear the cop-out that we use. Have you heard someone pray wholeheartedly for a situation and then go, and in the end, Lord, your will be done? Which is basically saying, I don't expect anything to happen, so I'll just cover all the bases here. We pray really hard for someone to be healed. In the end, your will, Lord. And God's going, yeah, I'd just like to leave them sick, actually. And we protect ourselves because we're not convinced about God's good heart for us. How do you become convinced? By abiding, by remaining in him, getting close to Jesus. Steve Gork Roger, who will be the speaker at Passion for Life. Thank you. Uh, He said, when Christians get disappointed about their prayers apparently not being answered, it may be because they've not really understood what it really means to pray in the name of Jesus. It is far more more than a mere phrase at the end of a prayer request. It is all about relationship with God. Jesus' prayers were always answered because he had such a close relationship with his Father, and because of that, he always knew what his Father's will was in every situation. Always knew. So we could ask ourselves a question, how close are we to God? We could ask another question that is essentially the same thing. How many of our prayers are being answered? 
I like the first question, because I go, oh, I'm quite close. I'm not sure about the second one. In fact, it leaves me feeling quite vulnerable. Have some of our prayers been our work and not God's? I want you to think about some of the things you've been praying for for ages. Whose agenda is it really? You see, we've been praying earnestly for things, and maybe in the big scheme of things, your prayer is absolutely right. But in the day-to-day of what you're asking God, it's all about you, even though you're praying for them. Maybe for many years we've prayed prayers that, that actually have been an expression of our heart, and we've never actually asked God what his heart is. Now, it might not always be easy to spot. Sometimes it's obvious. If you go back home and you look down your prayer list and the villa in Tuscany is still there, okay, there's, there's, there's an outside chance that you've lost the plot on that, unless God's calling you to set up a, a, a mission there to support Baptist ministers that can go and spend weeks at a time basking <laughs> on the beach. In which case, suddenly I feel the power of the Spirit coming on that particular thing. But otherwise, maybe not. But what about the things that you have been praying that really do seem what God actually wants to do? Let me try and illustrate this from the life of Jesus. Jesus had a buddy called Lazarus. They were good buddies. They were family friends. They knew each other well. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. News comes to Jesus that Lazarus is dangerously sick. Now, Jesus is the healer. The Bible says he's healed everybody that he's touched. He only needs to speak a word and that person will be healed. So what's Jesus the healer going to do? He's going to peg it off down to Bethany and he's going to heal Lazarus. That's the expectation. It's what the disciples expected him to do. It's what the crowd expected him to do. It's certainly what the person who sent word to Jesus that his best mate Lazarus was sick expected him to do. But in the end, it wasn't what Jesus actually did. Jesus seemed almost carefree about the whole thing and said these very strange words. When he heard this, that's the news about Lazarus and the request to come, he said, this sickness won't end in death. Then it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is not about Jesus not caring. He loved them. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he, the healer, the only one who could definitely make Lazarus well, did what? Stayed where he was two more days. On the surface, it seems completely uh, at odds with what we would understand and expect Jesus to do. We would have rushed. Then Lazarus dies. And it just exacerbates the situation for everybody. Why on earth was Jesus? This is Lazarus. He's healing all these people. He's even raising dead people. Yet when Lazarus is sick, his best mate, he just sort of chills around. Stays on holiday for a few more days. Doesn't seem too bothered. And then he goes in the fullness of time. And he stands outside the tomb. And he calls Lazarus out. He'd been in the tomb for four days. Why? Why? Jesus says why. And you can read the story for yourself. Jesus says why. It's because he's listening to his father. And his father was seeking to do something bigger and better. 
And had Jesus rushed to Lazarus' side, taken himself outside of the Father's will, and spoken into Lazarus, maybe nothing would have happened. Because it did not come from heaven. And maybe you're praying prayers that on the face of it seem really right. Step back. Is it what the Father wants to do right now? Is there something different? Is there something better? Is there something bigger that's in God's heart? If only we'd step back and begin to pray the right thing. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. You see, maybe you're praying for a a non-Christian family member and you've been praying for years. And does God want that non-Christian family member to come to Christ? Yes, absolutely, certainly, absolutely no questions, ifs, buts, or maybes. But maybe the prayer is something different just now. Please help me to have a conversation that opens up something that really matters. Maybe that's the prayer for you that's in Jesus' name, according to the Father's will just now. And so we bang on with the things that that, that are on our hearts. And it's time to say, Lord, I'm inviting your kingdom to come, your will to be done in this situation. I'm no longer imposing mine. Remember a story of a prayer meeting, uh, not in this church, uh, uh, and it illustrates how uh, 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 you get to a point sometimes when you just don't know what to pray, and that's the most powerful place. When you don't know what to pray, and the Bible says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, and we don't know what to pray or, or how we should pray, but even the Spirit himself will pray on our behalf. The brilliant thing about that is it's a perfect prayer, which makes it much better than any of ours. And the story, we were at this prayer meeting and uh, we're sitting in a, in a kind of circle around a Calagas stove, sniffing in the gas, you know, as you do, just to uh, uh, get your way through the evening. Uh, and and clear, clear impression in my head, God said to me, the end of the prayer meeting, offer to pray for this lady over there, we'll call her Mary. Go and pray for Mary. What about? Nothing. Go and pray for Mary. This is ridiculous. But I, I'd, I'd, under, I'd heard things like that, impressions in my mind, enough to know that God's ridiculous makes a lot more sense. And I said to Mary at the end of the, uh, of, of the meeting, would you mind if I prayed for you? She kind of looked a little bit surprised. I said, okay. I put my hand on her head and I began to pray in tongues. I had no idea what to pray. What could I possibly pray? I don't know anything about her really or her situation. Within, within just a few moments, she went to the floor under the power of God, not slain in the spirit, Ananias and Sapphira. Don't get caught with that. But the power of the Holy Spirit, and she lays there, in a peaceful way, five minutes or so later, she gets up, countenance totally changed, bright and beautiful, walks out the door and says, how did you know? Doesn't give me time to answer. And to this day, no what? No idea. But that's fab, isn't it? To pray in Jesus' name. It's not about us, but it is all about him. And so lastly, as we move into communion, Praying in the name of Jesus is prayer that is accessed through Jesus, God's Son. Let me illustrate this with a story about a pastor, uh, Ronald Dunn, who uh, uh, teaches on prayer. Some of you might have read a book of his, uh, Don't Just Stand There, Pray Something. Uh, So it's worth it for the cover. When I was a pastor of a young, fast-growing suburban church, I found that the best hour for my personal prayer time was around midnight. Everybody else was asleep, and neither the phone nor the doorbell was likely to ring. One particular day had been unusually hectic. It had been consumed by busy work. I'd taken time to, sorry, I hadn't taken time to pray or read my Bible. I'd done nothing spiritual. 
I'd written some necessary letters, returned a number of phone calls, planned meetings, and worked on the church calendar, but nothing spiritual. Yes, a minister's life is that boring. At midnight, I came to my prayer time feeling unworthy. The first words out of my mouth were, Lord, I know I have no right to ask you for anything tonight. And I proceeded to apologize for being too busy to pray, read the Bible, or witness. Too busy to do anything spiritual. I was praying like a wimp. Suddenly it seemed as if the Lord said, suppose you'd done a lot of spiritual things today. Suppose you'd prayed for four hours, read the Bible on your knees for another four hours, and led ten people to Christ. Would you feel more confident praying than you do now? Yes, I would. Then you're praying in your own name. You think I hear you because of your holiness. You think I am more inclined to listen to you if you've done a lot of good works. You're approaching me in your own unworthy name. If you'd prayed for eight hours today and read the Bible on your knees for eight hours and led 50 people to Christ, you would have no more right to pray than you do just now. Before all done rights, I looked down at the floor of the throne room and saw it was sprinkled not with the sweat of my good works, but with the blood of his sacrifice. How often we pray, as if God answering our prayers is somehow our right. He welcomes us into the throne room of his grace, and we keep our eyes on the floor, sprinkled with the blood of his sacrifice. He who pleads well, says Spurgeon, knows the secret of prevailing with God, especially if he pleads with the blood of Jesus. For that unlocks the treasury of heaven. Many keys fit many locks, but the master key is the blood and the name of him that died and rose again and ever lives in heaven to save unto the utmost. I guess the point is this, when you go to the place of prayer, decide in whose name you're choosing to come. One story to finish. Dwight Moody, the uh, very famous <clears throat> evangelist, had a co-worker who's quite famous, but perhaps not as famous, R.A. Torrey. And he used to tell a story, a true story, that during the Civil War, there was a father and mother in Ohio who had an only son they loved dearly. Not long after the outbreak of war, he informed his parents that he had enlisted in the army. Of course, the lad's parents felt sad to see their son leave home, though they loved their country and felt his services were needed. According to Torrey, after the son left for the front, he wrote home on a regular basis, sharing with his parents many exciting experiences. His letters were always full of good cheer. Then one day, the letters ceased to arrive. Days passed, and still there were no letters. Weeks passed and the parents began to fear the worst. Finally, a letter came bearing the insignia of the United States government. In it, parents were told of a great battle in which many had been killed. Their son had been numbered among the dead. For days and weeks, the parents mourned. The years slowly passed. The war came to an end. Fading memories lingered. Then a strange thing happened. One morning, as they were sitting at the breakfast table, the maid brought word that a poor, ragged man was at the door looking for the man of the house. She tried to turn him away when he handed her a note written in the handwriting of their deceased son. When the father opened the crumbled page, he read, Dear father and mother, I've been shot and have only a short time to live. I'm writing you this last farewell. As I write, there is kneeling beside me my most intimate friend in the company. 
And when the war is over, he will bring you this note. And when he does, be kind to him for Charles' sake. Signed, your son Charles. Evangelist Torrey concludes, there was nothing in that house too good for that poor tramp. And there is nothing in heaven or on earth too good or too great for you and me in Jesus' name.